Well, you should have uh, handouts starting with page seven uh, that came in the email. And tonight we're going to look at two verses. But to get to an understanding of what those two verses are, we're going to do a little bit of footwork on that. Uh, but let me first read uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. It says here, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. That's the NIV translation. Uh, King James Version would say it's an abomination. And then in chapter 20, verse 13, it's basically the same exact thing, but there is uh, an extra statement about the punishment in chapter 20, uh, verse 13, it says, if a man has sexual relationships uh, with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. So it's the same thing, but the, um, the punishment, the death sentence is in the second reference. So, now, how do we approach this? How do we go about it? How do we understand what's going on here? So we are in this series looking at what is called the clobber passages. So I have cleverly titled this study, Confronting the Clobber Critics, because these are the verses that they use against the LGBTQ community. So there are six of them in that, actually seven verses, but uh, six uh, different books that are used. And we looked at chapter 19 of Genesis last week, and we concluded that it was talking about violent rape in an effort to humiliate and intimidate those that had come into the city of Sodom. Uh, it is a, a brutal tactic uh, to ensure that there would not be an influx of immigrants into the city of Sodom. So now with, that brings us to the second one in Leviticus 18 and 20. And I just want to build up to these two verses by giving you a little bit of backdrop information about the book of Leviticus. Uh, this is one of the toughest books to get through if you were to try to read through it. You probably would only get through a few chapters and you'd say, there, I, number one, I don't understand what's going on. Number two, I don't understand how it applies to me in the 21st century. So with that in mind, uh, here's a, a few things I think we should keep in mind before we tackle these two references. So we need to keep a perspective on the book of Leviticus. And I'm not giving you a lot of backdrop information, but I do think this is interesting to understand what the intent is behind the book. So if we were to understand the action of the book of Leviticus, we are actually understanding only about a, a month in chronological time that this information was given. As you can see there on the slide, half of the book of Exodus, uh, all of Leviticus, and the first third of the book of Numbers covers about 11 months. So I keep that in mind, 11 months and subdivision of that, Leviticus is about one month of revelation that 
was given to Moses. Then the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, so four of the five books of the Torah, covers about 120 years. So that should jump out at you because the uh, second uh, half of the book of Numbers and all of the book of Deuteronomy covers a large swath of time. And it tells more of a narrative story of the people uh, turning back when they get to Kadesh Barnea and they're about to go into the promised land and they wander in the wilderness. As the generation begins to die off, there is a second giving of the law as if the first wasn't enough. Uh, Deuteronomy, Deutero uh, being second, Namas being law, the second giving of the law. So it is basically duplicating what we have already seen in the book of Leviticus. Now that tells me something really important. When we talk about the compilation of the entire Torah, it seems as though there's a heavy emphasis on the book of Leviticus, not because of the number of the laws, but because, what, uh, because of what those laws are trying to accomplish. So having said that, that's the first thing we need to notice. Second thing we need to notice is the name Leviticus. That is not the Hebrew name of the book. The Hebrew name of the book is the very first words of the book, as is all the other books of the Torah. So what does the first verse say of the book? The Lord called to Moses. The Lord called to Moses. And that's the name in Hebrew, uh, Vaikra, uh, meaning the first word of the book. The Lord put a calling on Moses. That particular phrase is really interesting because that is recorded about 36 times in the book of Leviticus. This is the Lord calling Moses to reveal something. Now, a second thing that's interesting here is at the beginning of God's calling to Moses, he met God at the tent of meeting, which later would become the tabernacle. If you remember the book of Exodus, he first had a tent of meeting, and then he was given instructions on how to build the tabernacle. So they are two separate structures in the book of Exodus. But in the book of Leviticus, they are combined. Uh, and that's an interesting thing to note because it is no longer two structures. It's only one structure. So it says here, in verse 1 of chapter 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. This, though, is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is completed, and it, there probably is a reason why the tent of meeting is replaced by the tabernacle and why that's an emphasis in the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, you have two traditions. You have what is the P tradition and the H tradition. The P stands for the priests, H stands for the holiness code. P stands for laws of ritual and cleansing for the priests at the first half of the book. The second half of the book is where you get all that minutia, dietary laws, sexual laws, all those type of things that pertains to the nation as a whole. 
then we see that um, the book, as it is called in Judaism, has another name. So they drop this idea, the Lord called. And in Judaism, it is called Tarat Kohanim. And that means instruction for the priests. Now, if any of you have ever met a Kohen, uh, that uh, last name or surname comes from this uh, Hebrew. Um, so Kohen, a surname for a Jewish person, means a come from the priestly line. Um, so uh, this all is interesting in the sense that the book of Leviticus has different ways that it has been called in its tradition. One more slide, and then I'll see if you have some questions. Now then, we fast forward to Greek. And that's where we get the actual name Leviticus. So remember when the nation of Israel went into exile, that eventually they were held captive uh, under the Greeks. The Greeks, through Hellenization, um, imposed Greek culture and Greek language upon the Jewish people. Many of the newer generation of Jewish people began to lose their ability in Hebrew, and so the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and that is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. In Greek, the book of Leviticus is called Leviticon, Leviticon, which means things pertaining to the Levites. So if you remember, Levi is one of the tribes, and they are set apart to serve in the sanctuary, uh, in the tabernacle. And it seems as though most of the tradition around Leviticus, even though the holiness code tradition pertains to the entire people, the whole first half of the book is pertaining to um, the uh, Levites that are priests. Now, not all of the Levites are priests. There are other people in the tribe of Levi, Levi that are not priests. Um, the whole female population uh, is not in, in the priesthood. But uh, the Levites are the only ones that serve as priests, and that comes from Aaron's line. So Aaron, the close companion of Moses. So what I'm trying to say is in each of these titles of the book, it's primarily about priestly ritual duties. And these rituals are there to help maintain the communion that the Israelites have with the God that delivered them out of Egypt. So let me stop there. Does all that make sense? Because I think when you look at the book and you come up with the question, are we supposed to keep all of these commands in the book of Leviticus? The answer is no. It never was yes, even to the Jewish people. Most of it was for the priestly class, but there are sections of it that pertain to the populace as well. Let's see if you have some thoughts, comments, questions, clarifications. How do you know which sections are for the general population? Well, that's the second half of the book. And 
what you're going to find is that when you are reading in the first half of the book, it's primarily about offerings, okay? And the offer ritual of the different offerings, the sin offering and the burnt offering and the grain offering is primarily administered by the priestly class. So not anyone can wander in to the tabernacle and offer up a sacrifice. On the second half of the book, though, these do not pertain to offerings. They pertain to uh, rituals that keep them clean versus unclean. And so the distinction really is who's allowed to make offerings, the priestly class, and who is it that is required to remain clean? And if they uh, become unclean, and I'll give you some illustrations of that in a couple moments, uh, what is it that they need to do? They need to go to the priest. They need to offer up uh, a sacrifice so that they can be cleansed and not pollute uh, the community. And that, that's a very important thing that I just said. The big deal about the book of Leviticus is are these things that will not just make a person unclean, but will it pollute the community? Does that make sense? Okay. And I'll give you some illustrations of that as we move along. But does that make sense, Tony? Okay. Any other yes. thoughts? Larry, when I was doing my research years ago, um, I had this verse come up in the different readings I did that it was um, more referring to whole families having sex with the priests of Baal. Did you come up with anything like that? Yeah. Um, actually, the first reference we're going to look at out in chapter 18, verse 22 the verse that immediately precedes it is talking about sacrificing your children to Moloch. Uh -huh. So yes, there's, there is that connection too. Yes, you're exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Anybody else? All right. Now here's where a lot of Christians land on the book of Leviticus, and it's really out to lunch, okay? So I'm sure all of us have heard at some point that the book of Leviticus is how Jewish people got saved. They had to keep the law to get saved. But now Jesus has come along. He's kept all of the uh, law Therefore, we don't have to, and we get saved by grace. You, uh, All of that we could classify as works righteousness, that the Jews had to work for their salvation, but we receive salvation through grace. You need to wipe that from your thinking. In the Old Testament, there is not any idea of going to heaven uh, when you die. Most Jews would say you go to Sheol, the place of the grave, and you await a resurrection to come. So taking a Christian concept, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
is a New Testament concept that uh, that Old Testament uh, people would look cross-eyed at you and say, what are you talking about? So if it's not works righteousness, then what is it? So the law is not a condition for salvation. Now that that thread is still around a little bit. And that is uh, a works righteousness type of mentality is still found, especially in theological circles <clears throat> that believe you can lose your salvation. So you need to keep the Ten Commandments, and then you need to keep all the moral laws that are in the book of Leviticus. The problem is, there is no distinction between ceremonial and moral laws in the book of Leviticus. The distinction is between clean and unclean, not between moral and ceremonial. So when somebody pushes back and says, well, I don't need to keep the laws of the dietary laws of Leviticus, but you do need to keep in mind that there's some laws, thus this idea of a prohibition against uh, the gay community. Well, that's a moral law. So therefore you're to keep that, but eating shellfish and uh, wearing mixed fabrics and putting a mixture of different types of seeds in the ground, you don't have to, you don't have to keep those, but you have to keep the moral law. So we've all been kind of exposed to that in one way or another. The main thing here is these are not hoops to jump through so that God can, can, for, can forgive you. The main thing to keep in mind is when they came out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 19, the very top of chapter 19 of Exodus, talks about how they are already a redeemed community, that they are the chosen people, and that's why God is giving this law to them because they are a chosen community that already belongs to God. Does that make sense to everybody? So the more people um, believe that you got to keep all of these laws in order to get God's forgiveness, the more confused they will be about what's going on in the book of Leviticus. So kind of remove that from your thinking and keep an open mind as we forge ahead here because these issues here will become clear in just a moment as we get down to this idea of clean and unclean, okay? Any questions, comments? So that will bring us to this idea of clean and unclean. So um, what, what is happening here? I think I got my slides out of order here. So in chapters 11 through 15, there is what's called kosher laws. Now, if you've ever gone to the grocery store and you pick up a package of food, there is a Hebrew letter kof that is on it that indicates that it's kosher for Jewish people to consume. 
So look for it the next time you go grocery shopping. You'll see it's like a backward C, okay? Uh, it's the letter Kof, and that's where we get this idea of kosher laws. Now, if you have your Bible, go over to chapter 11 of the book of Leviticus, and trust me, I'm not going to go through all of these, but I want to highlight a few things and some interesting observations. So in chapter 11, you dive right into clean and unclean foods. So there's a whole listing of all kinds of them. Um, so if you were to start at the top and, and, and go all the way through the chapter, notice how this works. So verse one, it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the priestly line of Aaron, say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may not eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. And then he goes on. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof. You must not eat them. Da, 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 da. And then you'll need notice as you go down through, you'll keep seeing the word unclean. Okay. You can't eat those. They're unclean. You can't eat that. It's unclean, it's unclean, it's unclean. So there's a huge distinction between clean and unclean. And what's interesting here is to be unclean means that there's some pollution that needs to be cl uh, 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 cleansed. So think of the uh, cleanliness laws as being ritually given a shower that makes you um, worthy to be a part of the community. If you're unclean, you're like your son or daughter uh, who came in after they were rolling around in the backyard and they're just full of mud. And you tell them, you're not taking, you're not stepping into this house, stripped down out in the garage. Okay, that's the idea here is it is unclean, uh, the unclean is something that will uh, bear its tracks in the community, if you will, sort of like our kids will bear their marks as they walk through the house and they leave all kinds of mud in, 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 uh, in the house. So the first thing that it talks about is animals. The second thing that's talked about, just go over to chapter 12, is about giving birth. So here it says, verse 1 of chapter 12, say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised, and then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter, for two weeks the woman shall be unclean as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. So notice there's a difference between the birth of a boy and a birth of a girl, okay? 
Um, it says here that on the eighth day after the boy is circumcised, the woman must wait 33 days to be purified. Then if in verse five, she gives birth to a daughter for two weeks, she's unclean. And then she must wait another 66 days to be purified. So, you know, I don't know why there's a difference between the boy and the girl, but here's the deal. Blood is a big issue in the Old Testament. And of course, a woman loses blood in delivery of a child. So that makes her unclean. It does not mean it makes her wicked. That's a very important distinction. It just means that she bears kind of a pollution that needs to keep her separated uh, from the community until she has gone through this period of time. Now, the same thing can be said about leprosy. So even uh, in the New Testament, Jesus will heal some lepers. And if a leper is walking down the street, they are to proclaim unclean, unclean, because they're not allowed to be a part of the community. So this is not about sin. And I think that's critically important to keep in mind. Giving birth is not a sin. A menstruating woman has done nothing wrong. It's just part of um, the monthly cycle. And the same could be said of skin diseases as well. Uh, chapter 13 is about skin diseases in Leviticus. But it does make these individuals unclean, ceremonially unclean, and they need to wait a period of time before they're allowed back into the community. Does that make sense so far? Okay. So that brings me to this. The Israelites believed that certain activities, actions, and contacts influence the whole community. There are certain things that they believe contaminated the community. And if it was left unchecked, it could become a barrier. And so that's why the sin offering and guilt offerings that are uh, given instruction at the beginning of the book of Leviticus is so uh, precise. Uh, this is what is done for the sin offering and guilt offering uh, so that the community as a whole can be clean. What is this all about? It's about protecting the tabernacle because the tabernacle is the presence of God on earth. The tabernacle's, in, uh, the tabernacle's purity is critically important. And that's why, in some cases, a violation of some of these things have a death penalty attached to it. Now, you think of Aaron's sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, they are killed because they offered up an unauthorized sacrifice. In other words, they didn't follow the protocol in the first half of the book of Leviticus. Well, what happens is this pollution builds up. And so once a year, they want a do-over. And the do-over is called Yom Kippur or we call it the Day of Atonement. 
It is also called the day of purification. So when you get to chapter 16 of Leviticus, it's all about the day of atonement. And in this uh, setting, we are given the instructions of how Aaron is to enter the holy place, the offerings that he makes that allows the people to have a new start. Then what we're told about is this idea of two goats. One is offered as a sacrifice. The other one is called the scapegoat, or the Hebrew, the Azazel. The Azazel is the, the impurities of the community is confessed over this goat. Then that goat is taken out into the desert and it's taken as far away as possible to remove the impurities of the people from the community and in particular, the tabernacle. So all of this stuff is very strange to us in the West. It's very strange because these are traditions that go back thousands and thousands of years. And it's what they believed. They believed that they could affect the community by these different things and that there could potentially be uh, death penalties that would be brought against them uh, should that pollution be so great of a violation of against the community. So you have these traditions. You have sin offerings, grain offerings, burn offerings. You have Yom Kippur. And all of it is very complex. I've skipped over a whole bunch of stuff here. But the thing that you keep in mind is that it's primarily about clean and unclean. And if people are unclean, they need to be given a bath. They need to be purified. So that's what much of the book of Leviticus is about. Now that brings us to the second half of the book. But before I get there, do you have do you have any comments, questions, concerns? So the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 16, is the priestly tradition. 17 through 26 is called the H tradition. Now, if you remember back uh, when we were studying in Exodus, I told you about the JEPD theory that it is a, com a compilation of different traditions that are brought together in the book. That's true in Leviticus too. Now, the H tradition stands for the holiness code. And that's what you have in chapter 17 through 26. It expands upon the laws that are given to the priest, and it applies them to the community. Now, there, here's the change of thought. As the tabernacle is considered the holy place of God in the priestly tradition, chapters 1 through 16, now the whole land is considered the, priest, uh, uh, the sacred land, and now it will be applied to the um, to the people as a whole, because all of the land is considered a sacred place. Now, this section here is is like uh, a buildup of impurities in the land 
could force God to move the people out of the land. That's what happens later. When we see the nation of Israel go into exile to Babylon, then to Medo-Persia, eventually to Greek, and then to Roman rule, what we find is the idolatry and worship of false gods forces God to push them out of the sacred space, push them out of the land, sort of like the unauthorized sacrifices of Nadab and Abihu brings a penalty upon them because they offered up unauthorized sacrifice when people uh, do not keep true to the uh, holiness code then they will be forced out of the land now here's the idea behind it how many of you watch the show hoarders or at least have seen an episode of hoarders okay at one time that house was clean but it became unclean well how did it become unclean it became unclean by the continual buildup of junk, mostly. Broken things, um, pizza boxes, newspapers, all that type of thing, until eventually an intervention needs to take place. And usually the family calls in uh, the hoarder experts to come in and try to change the mindset of the hoarder because literally... The hoarder has lost everything. They don't have a kitchen. They don't have a bathroom. They don't have a bed they're sleeping on. All of this has become so polluted that they're forced out of the house because the house is no longer functioning. Does that make sense to everybody? That's what this idea is of the sacred space or land. If there is a buildup of un unclean, then God has to do like the professional hoarder uh, professionals that come in and need to take it out and get rid of it all. And so what is it that they are most concerned about? They are most concerned about things that might force God to bring judgment upon them and force them out of the land. Again, this is not about heaven. It's not about individuals. It's about communities. And this community made up of the 12 tribes is trying to keep the land pure so that God will not judge it. Does that make sense to everybody? Now, here is where we're introduced to a word that is thrown around quite a bit. When we talk about the LGBT community, a lot of Christians call them an abomination, an abomination. And this idea comes out of the book of Leviticus in the sense that the word that is used for abomination, translated in the King James Version, is tova, tova. Now, come over to chapter 18. Okay, here we come to the verse that we're going to, what, what we want to get to. So in chapter 18, the verse that is a clobber passage is verse 22. 
do not have sex, sexual relationships with a man as one does with a woman, that is detestable, the NIV says, okay? King James Version calls that an abomination. Now, Shelley, here's that verse right above it that you were talking about a moment ago, okay? Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord, which suggests that there is some connection here to false worship and connection to false gods. But we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. Now, you would think this word tova uh, is the ultimate uh, word of of condemnation because it, it's speaking of evil, sinful, wicked. That's often the con connotation of the word. However, there are other Hebrew words the lawgiver could have used to pinpoint wickedness and evil. They don't choose to do that. They choose to, word the, uh, to use the word tova. Now, Keep your thumb in Leviticus and go over to Deuteronomy chapter 14. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, these things too are considered tovah. Okay, keep this in mind. Look at verse four, chapter 14, verse 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Do not eat any tova thing. Do not any eat any detestable thing, the NIV says. So all of a sudden, this word is being used in relationship to food laws, it goes on. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, so on. And then it goes on and says uh, not to eat other things. And in verse 7, it says, here, although they chew the cud, they do not have a divided hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. The same thing is said down in verse 10 about creatures in the water, uh, anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat for you. It is unclean. It is tava. That's what it says here in verse three. They are detestable things. It's not wicked. These animals aren't wicked or evil. They're just unclean. Does that make sense? Okay. Huge distinction here. Now notice, come down to verse 21. Do not eat anything you find already dead. In other words, don't pick up the roadkill and have it for dinner. However, you may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it, or you may sell it to any other foreigner. It's okay for those foreigners to have, but it's unclean for you. Okay? A little bit of a double standard there, right? But tova is not about morality. 
It's about identity. When something is detestable, it means it is off limits to you. Why? Because you're a treasured possession, and I don't want you to be the same as every other nation. You can go ahead and give that type of food to the other nations, no problem. But I want to create a cultural taboo that makes you distinct as my treasured possession. Now, every, 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 every culture has things that are culturally acceptable and culturally taboo, right? So when you think about it, here in the West, there are certain things that we think that's just not right. Let's take let's take um, the idea of marriage. In some cultures, polygamy is just fine. In the West, that is tova. That's detestable. There's laws against multiple wives. That is true around the world. And I'm not really wide traveled, but every culture has its own set of things that are acceptable and not acceptable. Some of these things that are acceptable to us is unacceptable at other places and vice versa. All societies have things that just gross them out. So we think nothing about killing cows and chickens and eating them, but I would bet you wouldn't eat a snake. Why? You're culturally conditioned. Other parts of the world would think of that maybe as a delicacy of some sort. We are all culturally conditioned, and you might say it's part of our holiness code. In other words, this is what sets us apart. We don't eat bugs. We don't eat snakes. We don't eat tongue. We don't eat intestines. Other parts of the world do. But it grosses us out. Does that make sense? Okay. Leviticus is the holiness code for the Israelites. That's just part of their religion. So when you see the word tovah, it's not talking about morality as much as it's talking about identity. Okay, let me stop there. Do you have some thoughts? Yeah, Larry, I always thought that a lot of the um, rules and regulations that came down, especially the food rules, were there for a reason. Um, like, for instance, Israelites are not supposed to eat pork. Well, back in the day, you know, pork was full of worms and you couldn't cook it properly enough. And I thought God issued that order to keep them safe. I think that is a very practical side benefit of, of, what, of why maybe God gave some of the commands he did. Uh, to refrain from certain foods and those type of things. I really do believe it has a very practical side to it. 
but it it's more embedded in this idea of clean and unclean than it is about safe or unsafe to eat. And I think that that's what's in the text. This is clean. This is unclean. The idea of God protecting these people uh, from certain things that could make them sick, uh, that type of thing, is an added benefit. But I, I bet that within society, if we were able to go in a time machine, uh, we would be able to see that the Israelites thought it in more in terms of this is acceptable, this isn't an acceptable. Let me give you an example. Okay. Um, this was true when I went to Mexico and when I went to Brazil. When I when I went to both of those places on a, uh, a couple different missions opportunities, I was so surprised that when you went into the bathroom and you used the toilet paper, it was forbidden to flush the toilet paper in the toilet. Okay. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. They, their plumbing can't handle it. Right. However, to a Westerner, to take a soiled piece of toilet paper and put it into a trash can sitting next to the toilet, Estee's already shaking her head and she's grossed out by that. <laughs> All right. They don't think twice about that. That's just a part of their culture. But for the, us in the West, where we flush everything down the toilet and we get a clean bowl of water in the toilet bowl, it not only grosses us out, but I would venture to think that most of us go, this can't be sanitary. This can't be safe to have feces that is right next to you that's in a trash can. Here's another one. There are parts of the world where they throw their feces up on top of the roof. So they find something to wrap it up in and they throw it up on top of the roof because they have no, you know, they have no sanitary sewer system at all. They don't think anything about it. I can't imagine it, that it makes the community smell very good. <laughs> they probably don't even notice it, right? But we would we would be grossed out by it. The same thing with flies on street food. In parts of the world, you go to buy tacos or something else, and there's flies all over the meat. They don't think anything about it. But we, that's tova. That's detestable. Okay? And that's uh, off limits. Now, the reason I'm spending so much time on this is because most people don't get this picture of Leviticus. They think of it all in terms of moral commandments that are, and they don't take into account the idea of clean and unclean. So here's a challenge for you. If you read through the book of Leviticus, if you have the fortitude to do so, circle every time you see clean and unclean, and you will see dozens and dozens and dozens of that in the book. Does that make, does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. 
Okay. I'm never leaving the United States. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what some people do that's exactly yeah, right fine. yeah yeah right <laughs> okay now here's another problem in the book of leviticus it doesn't even agree with itself so in chapter 15 if a man has sexual relationships with a woman during her menstruation in chapter 15, he is considered unclean for seven days. In chapter 18, all the surrounding verses talk about that act being on par with incest and adultery. And then in chapter 20, both the man and the woman are cut off from the community. They are isolated like the uh, 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 lepers were. When you read the book of Leviticus, as you can see on the on the screen there, you're trying to untangle a puzzle that will leave you in knots. Scholars have spent their whole lives trying to untangle this book. It's not that it's not important. It's important, but for a particular reason. God brought a people out of Egypt, and he wants to set them apart. If you know anything about Judaism, they are always in process of trying to interpret and reinterpret the text. In other words, there's no one set interpretation because they understand that there's a lot of moving parts to it. So Rabbi X says this and Rabbi Y says that. They don't mind that and they are glad to debate about it, but they do not think that there's one set interpretation for any one verse that it has multiple options to it and boy the book of leviticus will challenge us on that so here we go so why is leviticus 18 22 and 20 verse 13 considered an abomination or tovah or detestable the catchphrase homosexuality is an abomination used by people that want to condemn the LGBTQ community is uh, use Leviticus as their club. And these two passages are used because they know the word itself is loaded. When you just hear the word abomination, there's something subhuman about it something supposedly that's gross about it. Now, I think, Tony, you mentioned this last week. That raises the question, if it is so gross and so subhuman, and if it causes people to be so isolated from other people because they think that these individuals are in some way um, detestable and they are subhuman or vile or whatever you want to say, why would anybody choose to be gay? Why in your right mind would you ever choose something that would cause you such pain? The, here's the issue. The LGBTQ community does not choose, they discover they discover something about themselves 
And then they must choose to embrace that about themselves, no matter if other people recognize it or not. But when the LGBTQ community is called an abomination, there's a technical term that is used for that, that is called infrahumanization, which is the idea of seeing people less than human. So once you attach that to a person, all of a sudden, they're no longer people, and you begin to call them monsters. And that, unfortunately, has been the experience of the LGBTQ community. They have been called this to the point where now they are seen as monsters. And that's why things like this come out. The gay community keeps pushing their agenda down our throats. The gay community wants to make everybody gay. Those that are in the LGBTQ community know that's not true. They know it not to be uh, that it's not true. But those on the outside that use the word abomination can somehow convince other people that the LGBTQ community is subhuman. It's unfortunate. And it is something that needs to be corrected. So here is what I think we need to do is come back to what chapter 18 and 20 is actually talking about. So in chapter 18, go back to 18 in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18. This is a whole set of unlawful sexual relationships. The whole chapter is. And all of these things are considered to be gross sex with your aunt, your uncle, your sibling, your mother, your stepmother, all of these things are considered to be off limits and, and unclean. Then in verse 21 that we just looked at a moment ago, it kind of takes a detour and it prohibits sacrificing your child to Moloch. Now, uh, uh, right on the heels of that prohibition, uh, against offering your children to Moloch. Then you have the next verse, do not have sexual relationships with a man as one does a woman, for that is detestable. So what happens here is this verse is kind of right on the heels of child sacrifice, but right before bestiality. Take a look at verse 23. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relationships with it. That is a perversion. And all of us would say, yes, that's gross, right? That's unclean. That's detestable. Now, it does take on kind of a moral tone here. However, it has a context. And I do think that verse uh, 21, 22, 23 have something to do with false worship. I think it has something to do probably uh, not only with child sacrifice, but verse 22 probably has something to do with temple prostitution to false gods. 
The same might be true also in verse 23, where bestiality might be a part of the worship uh, liturgy of these false gods. Why, certainly God doesn't want his people to do those type of things because there's a consequence. Look at verse 24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Ah, this is about pagan nations and what they do in their worship. Verse 25, even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. There you see exile is the consequence. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these uh, tova things, these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. It's as if the land is saying, gross. And it 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 forces it, uh, this, uh, these people to be led away, usually, and conquered. So when we keep this context here, I think what verse 22 is about has something to do with false worship. I do think just because you see the word tova, which is translated here detestable, even eating certain animals is considered tova. However, notice what the word is that's used for bestiality. It's a different Hebrew word. To have sex with an animal, that is a perversion. Now, verse 22 has a lot of debate. What does it mean to have sexual relationship with a man as one does with a woman? Does it involve penetration of some sort? That's what happened back in Sodom. Gang rape and penetration of the two angels that brought the destruction upon the city. Notice though, if it's about homosexuality in general, it leaves women off the hook. There's no mention of lesbianism in this verse. It's only talking about um, men. So what you have there is an interesting omission. Does that mean there were only gay men, but no gay women back then? Hmm, probably runs contrary to um, scientific fact, whether you lived 3,000 years ago or today. However, what you do have here is a, a prohibition against a specific type of activity the problem is even scholars don't know exactly what that means. What is that activity that is being prohibited? I don't think it means a loving, committed, caring relationship between two people of the same gender. I don't. And I think all that we've said tonight, keeping in mind the idea of the land is sacred, 
being forced out of the land, just as Adam and Eve were forced out of Eden because they polluted it, then what we find is these uh, commands. This particular command, now if you go over to chapter 20, is amped up. So when you come over to chapter 20, verse 18, it says here, if a man has sexual relationships with a woman during her monthly period, he has exposed the source of her flow and she has also uncovered it. Both of them are cut off from the people. Now, so it, it's uh, talking about all kinds of things. And then ahead of that, in verse 13, it says, if a man has sexual relationship with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is tovah, and they are this time to be put to death. So the death penalty is attached here. It seems as though chapter 20 amps up the consequences. Look at verse 14. If a man marries both a woman and her mother, it's wicked. Both he and they must be burned in the fire so that no wickedness will be among you. Again, verse 15, if a man has sexual relationships with an animal, he is to be put to death, and you must kill the animal. The death sentence in chapter 20 is what's attached to all of these different things that was already stated back in chapter 18. So why? Why is this? It seems to me that all of these things are attached to something specific. Look at the beginning of chapter 20, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel or in the land, the sacred land, who sacrifices any of his children to Moloch is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him and will cut him off from his people, for by sacrificing his children to Moloch, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my name. That's what this is all about. Defiling the land, defiling the tabernacle, defiling the name of God. Now, the key question becomes, when two men or two women love each other and are committed to each other, and serve each other, and care for each other. Is that detestable in God's eyes? It seems to me the context here is something much more egregious than anything like that. It seems to me that we have taken these verses of Leviticus out of its context and have failed to understand that it is something that the Old Testament people didn't even have a concept of, that two people would love each other over the course of a lifetime. In other words, the idea of same-sex marriage and relationship, I do not think was on their radar as it is in our day in the 21st century. So, you can do with that as you see fit. Um, there's, let me stop there and see if you have some thoughts before I kind of 
wrap our time up uh, with a couple more slides. Anything that you want to mention? Well, Larry, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. Um, David says about Jonathan. David says about Jonathan that his love was better than that of a woman. Mm -hmm. I would say that since they were all about um, the male and passing things down through the male, mm -hmm. that it's not that the relationships weren't thought about and that they didn't have them. It was that it was such a male-oriented society that they didn't think of men marrying men or women marrying women. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, uh, the idea of uh, the patriarchy of the Old Testament is very, very strong, and the the whole idea of um, in the case of your example, Jonathan didn't want to take uh, the reign of his father, but wanted David to be the king. Mm -hmm. And um, that is is countercultural as well in its day. The normal thing would be, I'm going to succeed my father and I'm going to uh, carry on his kingdom, uh, or at least to the eldest son. Yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, no, I, I think that plays into it tremendously. And you bring up a good illustration. There have been some um, some theologians that suspect that maybe David and Jonathan were either um, homosexuals or bisexuals. In the case of David, obviously, he had a number of concubines and and uh, and that type of thing. Um because the language is so strong that they loved each other more than a love for a woman. And there's no proof on that one way or the other. That just how theology works. People surmise different things, but it, it is a very interesting relationship. And mm -hmm. I do think that it's, it plays into this conversation. I really do. And I do think your observation on patriarchy as it has a very important place in it for sure thank you mm -hmm. others okay so let me give you a couple more things and then we'll be done so is these two verses in leviticus an abomination today. Well, by using the word abomination, I already told you that we're using it in a different definition than was used in Leviticus, because an abomination was also eating things that were unclean. So maybe the primary motivation behind these commands is to prevent the blending of cultural boundaries. So that's on the table for discussion today as well, because um, there are still people that believe that there shouldn't be interracial marriage. Um, uh, you know, you're blending two different cultures and that type of thing. I think that probably was pretty strong back then. In fact, in the Old Testament, after the people come back from exile and Ezra 
forces all these men at the end of the book of Ezra to divorce their wives because they intermarried foreigners while they were in exile. Shows you how strong a mentality that still is, even after they come back from exile. The two verses that are in question in Leviticus are written probably to liberate a group of slaves and to help them understand a unique identity after they've come out of slavery. And these two verses, I don't think, are talking about a same-sex committed relationship. So my take on this is an abomination in Leviticus is not always an ethical term but it is something that is a cultural term that has a sense of taboo to it. Okay, those foreigners, they can go ahead and, you know, eat this or that or, you know, not flush their refuse down the toilet and put it into bags and throw it up on top of the roof. But not us. We're Americans. We don't do that. We have toilets. We would flush it, that type of thing. So I think there's cultural taboos that are at, uh, in play here. And if we can keep that in mind, you have just looked between the two verses in Leviticus and the one passage in Genesis at the only times uh, same-sex activity is mentioned in the whole Old Testament. That's it. And you can see... The Sodom passage is about gang rape. This passage here is about something to do with clean and unclean, has something to do that's attached to uh, idol worship, has something to do with the violence of disregard for human life in sacrificing children. And then we don't even know what these two men that are mentioned in uh, chapter 18 and 20 are even doing. Don't lie with a man as you would with a woman. This is, is this about penetration or is this about something else? And if scholars are honest, they will say, we don't know. We don't know. It's hard to build a, an airtight condemnation of a whole community of people based on two verses that has such difficulty in, in even clarifying what it's talking about. So having said that, um, I want to show you this idea of cultural taboo one more time. And hopefully this will bring it home for us. So uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was called the Prince of Peace uh, Preachers. He is an individual that um, uh, is, is, was considered one of the most eloquent preachers in all of Christian history. He loved his cigars. And uh, he at one time said that he would smoke to the glory of God. And uh, it was said that after Spurgeon made that pronouncement that he would smoke cigars to the glory of God, that English businessmen began to market the cigars, the type of cigars that Spurgeon smoked. And 
um, Spurgeon, it, it, the urban legend says that he entered a store and saw a sign one time that says Spurgeon smokes. And then the parents were complaining about this because their children uh, would would say uh, they would try to encourage their children not to drink alcohol or to smoke. And the children would push back and say, but Spurgeon does. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Hang tight. It's one thing if Spurgeon smokes a cigar in the privacy of his home. But I bet that those who even loved his, the idea that he had the freedom to smoke cigars probably would have felt uncomfortable if he lit up a cigar in the pulpit. Because it's not the place. Are you following what I'm saying? That's not the place to light up a cigar is in the middle of worship while he's preaching. So there's a cultural taboo that we might be able to associate with. Now, let me build on that. So out in Denver, you know, Colorado legalized marijuana many years ago. There was a an individual named Steve Burke, who is the founder of this nonprofit religious organization called Elevation Ministries. And he stands on stage uh, at the International Church of Cannabis. And he takes deep drags from a joint. And he closes his eyes and he raises his head uh, skyward and he excel, exhales. And in the wooden pews, 50 or so people follow his lead as they take a drag and blow the smoke up into the air in this chapel. That's what it looks like. So notice the kaleidoscope of color and that type of thing, which, you know, that was pretty popular back uh, with Lucy in the Sky and Diamond fame from the Beatles. Um so most of us would go, no, that's not right. Well, it's legal in Colorado, even at the time this church has started. Well, it's legal. It's not illegal. It's not a crime. But it would, I bet every one of us would say, ah, that's culturally taboo. That's just not right. Those two illustrations are simply to help you understand what you what you're doing when you're in the book of Leviticus. So clean and unclean is about cultural taboos as well as some moral elements to it, but not all of them are moral. When individuals will pick and choose, this is what happens. Christians say, well, I'll eat shellfish. You know, I like a steak. I like this or that. Oh, those are all ceremonial things that we've been freed freed from uh, the law. But these, uh, you have to obey. Yeah, you're walking on thin ice, I think, when you pick and choose. Uh, and it seems as though it's more about our own fears many times than necessarily taking to heart um the culture that we're reading about in the book of Leviticus. So here's one to push back on. 
when someone throws around the Exodus 18, uh, not Exodus, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 passage, you can ask them whether they charge interest on their loans. Because it is strictly forbidden in the book of Leviticus to charge interest on loans. Oh, that's that doesn't apply to us. Do you, uh, do you see what I'm saying? We, we're really flaky a lot of times on the things we pick and choose. So it it's it's something that you know we all have to work through, but I don't think it has the power punch that most of the people that are using bullhorns against the LGBT community uh, thinks it has the power. It just doesn't. Okay, what are your thoughts? Do you have any uh, any any other thoughts or things that you would like to talk about before we finish our evening? Well, Larry, I've always come back with the question, is it in the Ten Commandments to uh -huh. people? I think if God really cared, wouldn't he have put it in the Big Ten? I think that's a fair comment. I think the Ten Commandments are at the core of the Torah law. I do. Um, but I would bet that the 613 commands that you find in the Torah would be considered equal in the eyes of uh, those dedicated uh, to Judaism. We as Christians tend to make that distinction, I think, more than... Uh, Jews would. But I, I do think, I think that's a good point to make, though. Others? No? Well, I'm just giving you stuff to think about. You don't have to agree with me, but you got to chew on all the different dynamics of what's going on in Leviticus. Okay, well, I'm finished. If no one has any other comments or questions, then we'll call it a night. Good night. Okay. Thanks, Larry. Thank Bye. you. You're welcome. Thank you take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Good night.